connection to Slam's night. Please stand by. Welcome back to another episode of the Science Night Podcast. My name is James, and with me tonight is Jason. Hello. And Steffi. Hi, everyone. Tonight, we are going to talk about some cosmic tomatoes, some very toothy frogs, and we're going to finish up with our friend Bill Sullivan. You might remember him from the Halloween Spectacular of this year. Uh, He came back to talk to us again about his book, Pleased to Meet Me. That is going to be at the end of this episode. But first, let's start with the news. When we think of the potential of establishing long-term human populations on Mars, the mind tends to wander to works of fiction to imagine what that's going to look like. Will we have sprawling cities run by unfettered corporations like Total Recall, One person wants to make that happen, or is it going to be something smaller and potentially sustainable like the unforgettable method of growing potatoes in the Martian? A project thought up two years ago by the Tomato Masters, which is a title, at Heinz, is shedding some light on a potential Martian agricultural future. For nine months, 14 astrobiologists worked at the Aldrin Space Institute at Florida Tech in a lab called the Red House, which kind of harkens back to the Red Room vibes of the Amityville Horror, but very differently, to recreate the growing conditions on Mars with the goal of growing plants, which they did. Specifically barley, kale, and the subject of this new Heinz product, Tomatoes! Of course it's tomatoes. This has all basically been a very long-winded intro to tell you Heinz is releasing a Mars edition with a Z because apparently the good people in the marketing department at Heinz forgot that it's not 2005. A new edition of their catch-up using these tomatoes grown on Earth but under Martian conditions. So if we look at this as like a big product launch, it is just marketing. But if we think about the science behind it, I think there's something there worthy of the Science Night treatment. So what do we all think about space tomatoes? Well, I would like to first point out that the folks at Heinz that are in charge of this are referred to as tomato masters. And that is one of the coolest things I've ever heard, right? That's pretty good. I I aspire to be a tomato master. The way that they're growing this food is really interesting. You know, there's some maybe potential issues with the way that they've constructed this artificial environment to sort of mimic what's happening on Mars. For example, Mars's atmosphere is really rich in carbon dioxide, and that was not mimicked in this particular scheme. That could have the potential to make these things a little less representative of what might be possible on Mars, but the possibilities seem to be potentially endless. And that's kind of exciting, right? Especially since, and and I realize that we're thinking, you know, how do we colonize Mars and how do we sustain food there? But, you know, thinking back to changing climate here, these modifications that are being used might be really important as we try to continue to harvest crops in less than hospitable environment that we have here on our own home planet. I was really surprised that they can get plants to grow at temperatures 100 Fahrenheit degrees colder than here on Earth. Like that was really impressive. I didn't realize that that was possible. And yeah, the implications where we can actually grow 
and harsh conditions on Earth is great. And I think this kind of shows that marketing and, and space exploration, the funds that go into those activities can actually be beneficial now to people here on Earth. And I think that's kind of missed sometimes when we talk about science funding and, and putting more funding dollars towards science, but it can make implications, like change things better for everyone here now. Yeah, I, th I think this is like one of those things that you can point to, you know, for a long time, it was like Velcro and astronaut ice cream, but now space tomatoes and new ways to grow food on this planet. Some of the things that this article talked about are actually being grown in space. They talked about chili peppers and they talked about some greens that they're growing on the ISS. And they even talked about a fun taco party that they had got to have up on the space station, which was just great. Until like a little bit of hot sauce just starts floating around and I could see where that could How? be problematic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but this is definitely something that could benefit Earth in the future. Because these are grown under Martian conditions, but on Earth. I think if you're looking broadly at this new way of growing stuff, it's, it's really exciting that they're doing that. I agree. And I think it actually represents sort of an advance over the previous attempts to sort of model something like this. You think back to the biosphere experiments where out in the Arizona desert, they were creating biomes that were completely encased within a building, but they were self-sustaining and they were intentional that way. They were replicating earth conditions in a vacuum, essentially, or at least they were trying to do it in a vacuum. That is one way that you could potentially sustain a population, albeit very small, on another planet. But this takes it to the next level and says, okay, we don't need to have that structure in place. Instead, we're going to use fields that we're going to create right there in the soil on the planet. And that is what makes this potentially more exciting. For some applications too on Mars, humans are going to be there. They're going to need oxygen. You're, you can set up greenhouses and bring the materials for that. What's hard to bring is a bunch of soil. So if you can find a way to use whatever resources that are there on Mars, that would be great. And then it just kind of fill in the gaps with what we can bring along. Looking back at those biosphere experiments is you can also look at them as a cautionary tale. I think I'm specifically thinking about the documentary Biodome starring Polly Shore, where just <laughs> a small party breaks out and it it completely changes. <laughs> I tried to get that so far, but I... <laughs> I thought you were totally going to go for the more recent Biodome like documentary, cult-based, like, bringing... And then, yeah, then you went to the original documentary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I go back to the sources here. <laughs> oh, I don't have anywhere to go with that. It's a good movie. You should watch it, but hey, they do the safety dance. buddy. <laughs> Whatever happens with these products, I really hope that the food that they are producing gets stored under proper conditions, because we've all done it. You bring in vegetables from your garden, you put them on the counter, you forget about them, and then you are invaded by fruit flies, which brings us to the next story. Over 200 million years ago, the ancestor to modern frogs lost their bottom jaw and therefore their bottom row of teeth. And to this day, all frog species maintain this lack of lower rows of teeth, except for Gunther's marsupial frog. So the question is, why did they maintain this trait? 
how does it affect their fitness, which is their ability to survive long enough to pass those genes on to the next generation? And what can that tell us about frogs and specifically this frog? There's a problem. Uh, we haven't seen this frog in the wild since 1996, which makes it really difficult to study. And there are very few specimens that exist in a preserved state around the world. So we don't even really know what the teeth look like until now. Daniel Paula, a PhD candidate at the University of Florida, this is a very Floridian news segment, along with a team from the Florida Museum of Natural History, have successfully created images of the teeth of this mysterious frog using a micro CT scanner, which may help us answer some more questions about it. So what do we think about these very toothy grinned frogs? Terrifying. It looks terrifying. So, I mean, so I didn't actually know that frogs have, or marsupial frogs, have upper teeth in, like, in their jaw. That was good to know. And then seeing this CT image or the images that they came up with, with the full face of teeth, terrifying. But also pretty amazing <laughs> to hear how it happened. First, let's talk about what a marsupial frog is, though, right? Because this is something that maybe most folks are not familiar with. Most time we think about frogs, we think about that tadpole stage, right? Where there are free-swimming tadpoles that eventually become frogs through metamorphosis. Marsupial frogs don't actually have free-swimming tadpoles. They end up under a flap of skin, like a pouch, and that's where they develop. And so let's stop for a second and think about that. I mean, we have basically kangaroo frogs. That's frightening to begin with. And then they've re-evolved their teeth. And this is what is interesting because it's sort of counter to this longstanding hypothesis. Actually, it's a law, although I don't know that it's technically a law because there have been a number of instances where maybe the data are overturning the observations that were made before. But this idea called Dolo's law is that it's pretty difficult to you know, substantially re-evolve something once it has been lost in the lineage. And so um, a good example is, you know, non-human primates, most of them have tails, but apes do not. Humans are apes. Humans don't have tails. Yes, on occasion, you get someone who has a rudimentary tail. It's an atavism, they call that. It is not equivalent to the structure of a tail in a non-human primate. It's actually usually just a fat pad with maybe a little skin around it. There are no vertebrae in there. There's not an extension of the tailbone that we all have in our pelvis to have successive vertebrae that go down like you would see in a monkey tail, for example. Humans haven't re-evolved their tails. Apes haven't re-evolved their tails because it's thought to be fundamentally difficult to do that. Random mutations provide uh, the variation upon which evolution can act, and um, those forces of evolution can sort of shape the way a population looks. Usually it doesn't happen where you re-evolve something that the ancestral population had lost. This is an example of perhaps something counter to Dolo's law, this idea that you know frogs have lost their bottom teeth in most frog lineages. In fact, in almost all frog lineages, but this particular group has re-evolved teeth. And uh, what is remarkable about them is that they appear to be structurally very similar to the top row of teeth. It makes for a really interesting and potentially elegant story. 
but we're not quite there yet, right? This is just a couple of specimens that, that have been identified. And so we don't really know how widespread this actually is. There are frogs that have these little spikes. They talked about these in the article, but they're not actually teeth. They're just bony projections of the mandible that go through the skin. They're not dentin with their own blood supply. It's just continuation of the bone. Yeah, and it, what was interesting is for these specific frogs, too, they already have upper teeth. So the genes are already there. So they still had this functional network that they could tap into to have the lower teeth come in. So the structure was there, and it, diet kind of plays into account for some of these and why species have different features. If you look at this specific frog, its prey is kind of larger than other frog prey. It's advantageous to have those lower teeth because I didn't know this. They eat lizards and, yes. <laughs> and other frogs. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so you really need to cry, like clomp down on those to keep, um, to keep your prey from running away. This frog just keeps on going further right? and further down the path to a horrifying... <laughs> Murder frog. <laughs> yes. uh, so I think what's important Steffi, that you pointed out here is that they actually did some dissection work where they looked inside the stomach cavities of some of the um, specimens that they did have of this particular species of frog. And so they were able to identify what was being eaten because there are a very few of these that are even known to exist in the wild at this point. Um, I think I read somewhere that there were maybe 30 specimens <laughs> in museums, right? Right. 30, 30 which, preserved specimens um, in Which museums, yeah. tells you that Worldwide. there aren't a lot of these animals out and about, otherwise they'd have been collected. And so, you know, I don't know that we know a whole lot about what these animals are doing in the wild. We just are able to recreate things based on what we can see from the preserved specimens. It's a lot like trying to reconstruct behavior of fossil animals from the fossil record, but in this case, it's still a living species. The diet aspect is an interesting observation because you could make that argument based on the teeth, just the presence of the teeth. Well, they would have evolved these teeth again because they needed them to process their dietary you know, hardness or whatever, whatever their diets consisted of. They actually have evidence of, of differences in what these animals are eating compared to other species. And that was what I thought was really cool. It's a good cautionary tale for all the evolutionary biologists out there who are reconstructing behavior in fossil animals that, you know, sometimes what you're doing is absolutely spot on, but other times it's possible that you don't really know what you're talking about yet. And you need other lines of evidence, multiple lines of evidence to really um, make arguments. This one had uh, very clear multiple lines of evidence, the presence of these teeth and actually the actual dietary consistency. It's also a reminder of what science has lost due to climate change and agricultural use and, um, you know, tearing down forests. So their natural habitat is gone and that's why we can't find them right now. The other thing that we miss out by not having these frogs around that we can find is one of the hypotheses is that embryo development may be key to how these things re-evolve and turn on genes. If we don't have the embryos around, we can't see when genes turn turn the tooth formations on or off. Um, Because that happens, that's been seen in bats. So maybe that's the key here for frogs. 
No, that's a really good point. There are a lot of model organisms that are able to be used to understand how tooth development works. So a lot of that work has been done in mice. There's been some work in bats, as you mentioned, Steffi. What's amazing to me is that we don't have a really good idea how dental development works in primates, even though we have studied primates so much because they're our closest living relatives. And so that's a hole in the literature and a hole in the science that that should be filled at some point. Now, it's very difficult to get embryos to study from non-human primates. And you can make an argument that there are some ethical considerations that are different for primates than there are for other animals. I'm not going to make an argument one way or the other on that. I'm just pointing out that that's part of the reason that we have a gap in our knowledge in terms of primates. But we have a gap generally speaking, which is fascinating because one of the hallmarks of mammalian evolution is the evolution of what is referred to as diphyodonty, which is the fact that we have two sets of teeth, deciduous teeth, baby teeth, and adult teeth. And we lose our deciduous teeth and regrow our adult teeth. That is a hallmark of mammalian evolution. And we know that, and yet we still don't understand eruption sequences very well of teeth, and we don't understand uh, a whole lot about the embryology behind it in non-model organisms like mice. As someone who spends a large part of their professional career pretending teeth do not exist, because I teach medical students and not dentists, <laughs> you know, I I often have huge gaps in my knowledge. I know how blood and nervous impulses get to them, and then something happens, and we just kind of have these luxury bones in our mouth. I think this is all telling us that every little part of every little thing is worthy of studying to kind of unlock the clues of our evolutionary history. Because this is really pointing at the fact that evolution is not like a straight line towards a thing. It is a web of series of tinkering to see what is going to make that species live in its area. And unfortunately, outside forces have made this little frog's home not really exist so much. Uh, so that's that's on us, unfortunately, just like just like Steffi said, you know, another add it to the list, I guess, of depressing things that humans have done. Way to end on a cheery note. Ouch. I have something I to say. Good. Bring it back. Yeah. Bring it back up. We know of a very famous frog who is edentulous, has no teeth, yet is able Kermit? to speak incredibly well. Exactly. Kermit the frog, right? But we know that teeth are really important for pronunciation of words. I've always wondered how it was possible that Kermit the frog could lead a group of Muppets in a variety show, and yet has no teeth. Has a lot of heart. Makes up for the lack of teeth. So we talked a little bit about how genes can express differently at different times. And I think this is a good time to change gears, go to a quick commercial break, and then come back with Jason's conversation with Dr. Bill Sullivan, who is talking about epigenetics and how the world around us can potentially influence how our genes express that is all coming back after this quick commercial break can you hear me do you smell the foul corruption things get a little strange here and what about me like really strange grotesque stench of rotten flesh yet consider this an invitation to our humble podcast 
I'm only just starting. Just search, and we'll be waiting to greet you with a big hello. Come here. And welcome to Pulp from Beyond the Veil. Bill actually is the author of Please to Meet Me, which is the story about how many of our genes are programmed to help us become who we are. And it's not always as straightforward as you would think. And so, Bill, tell us, what does it mean to meet ourselves? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you raised that question, partly because it might help sell books. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, Please to Meet Me. Uh, the subtitle is Genes, Germs, and the Curious Forces that Make Us Who We Are. And it's all about the biological underpinnings, the biological mechanics that explain our personality and behavior. Um, because, you know, like James was implying, some of the unsettling uh, bits of information that you might take away from discussions like this is that we actually have a lot less control over ourselves than we like to think. And that's not necessarily a good or bad thing. It's just a thing, you know, that if that's the way it is, that's the way it is. It's better for us to know and face the truth uh, rather than deal with the demons of mysterious behavior that may be exemplified by yourself or others. Okay. Um, so pleased to meet me grew out of posts I was doing uh, on the blog that Jason was actually a part of for some time called the scope where I blogged about any new studies that shed some interesting light on the genetics or epigenetics of personality or behavior. So really quickly, before we move on, can, can you tell us what is the difference between genetics and epigenetics? Yeah, yeah. Thanks. I was, I was going to get into that because everyone I think is familiar with the fact that genes are kind of like a recipe for life. They, they, mm -hmm. they build an organism, or at least they contain the instructions. And most people don't have any qualms about associating genes with their physical makeup, okay? Genes control my eye color or whether my hair is curly or how much hair I can grow on my face, you know, things like that. And th that's not too unsettling. But when you start telling people that genes actually have a pretty strong say in how intelligent you are or how aggressive you are, then people start to get a little queasy. And that's understandable. And sure. I hasten to add that this is where epigenetics comes in because no one can take your genetic code and point to a gene or two and say how intelligent you're going to be or how aggressive right. you're going to be. What people often trigger in their brain says, oh, the genes don't have anything to do with my intelligence. It's all about me. Um, well, you, you got to recognize both sides of the coin here. Genes build your brain. Genes control your neurochemistry. Genes certainly have a say and how intelligent you are, depending on how mm -hmm. you're even measuring that variable. But you can certainly agree that they are not the whole story. You know, by, right. by most, most of the best studies out there, if, if you do a meta-analysis of these, genes comprise about 40, maybe 50% of your intelligence. Some okay. studies say more, some studies say less. So what about the other 50%? That's where the environment comes into play. So we often have this debate about nature and nurture, but they're actually two sides of the same coin because mm -hmm. the environment through mechanisms called epigenetics controls how those genes are activated. 
If you think about genes, most people picture an on-off switch, which is not entirely correct. They're more like a dimmer switch or a volume knob, and they can be turned on um, completely 70% of the way, maybe 50% of the way. Can they go to 11? They can go to 11. Yeah, we can go full <laughs> spinal tap uh, on those genes, you know, if you're in the right environment. There's components of the environment, you know, physical features, as well as even psychological features, according to some studies, mm -hmm. that can literally change how our genes are being expressed, what level they're going to, whether it's 3, 5, or 11. So that's, that's downright fascinating and kind of yeah. shakes up the whole genetic equation and tells us that there's more to the story than just what your genetic script has to say. And this also explains why identical twins, as they get older in life, sometimes exhibit different physical features. Some of the most dramatic being one twin stays lean and another twin gains a lot of weight and becomes obese. They're identical twins. They have the same exact genetic code. So how can they look so physically different? And that's because of epigenetics. The volume knobs of their genes are different because there's nuances they experience in their environment that lead them into uh, different behaviors. So yeah, genetics and epigenetics can't really be taken apart. And that's one of the major themes that uh, I try to get across and please to meet me. And as we understand more how the environment, how the chemicals in the environment, how our food, how activities like exercise or work change mm -hmm. the volume knob of our genes, that's going to put us on a more sensible road to achieve better health outcomes. Mm -hmm. I love that volume knob metaphor because it's really um, it's a really great way to describe what what you're talking about, but it's also something that's very relatable to everyone, right? I mean, we all know what a dimmer switch is, and we've all used one in some way, and so this makes a lot of sense to think about turning genes on to a certain degree or off to a certain degree and modulating sort of the the effects of their products. Um, so intelligence is just one of the topics that you cover. You cover several other topics, including love. Um, you talk about uh, political affiliations. Um, why does someone want to uh, read every single chapter in this book, Bill? What are they going to learn if they do? They're going to get, I think, a new sense of why they do the things they do. Each chapter describes a different facet of human behavior. One is tastes. Why do you like certain foods or why do you not like certain foods? There's a, a chapter on love, which tries to explain why we're attracted to the people that we're attracted to. Why are humans monogamous? We're one of the very few species on the planet that subscribes mm -hmm. to this ideal. And there's really compelling and interesting neurochemistry associated with that. Um, another chapter is about aggression, another about depression, our moods. So once you start doing a deep dive into all these facets of our behavior, there's really nothing about human beings that can't be explained through our biology. And that's not to demystify or belittle human behavior and the marvelous complexity associated with it. It's to seek a better understanding so that when things go wrong, we're in a better position to correct those anomalies. Thank you so much, Bill. Again, our guest has been Bill Sullivan, professor of Showalter Professor of Pharmacology and Toxicology at Indiana University School of Medicine. 
The book that he is talking about is called Please to Meet Me, Genes, Germs, and the Curious Forces that Make Us Who We Are. It is out from National Geographic Press. Thank you again, Bill, for coming on and uh, chatting with us. This has been so much fun to talk to you. It's a lot of fun. You guys are great. Thanks for having me on and providing this platform uh, so that people can learn about these interesting things. Thank you so much to Bill Sullivan for coming back and talking to us about his book, Please to Meet Me. You can find links to his website and how to purchase that book and all those things on our website, SciKnight.com. That is going to do it for this episode. I feel like we're just coming in hit after hit. It is a, a regular hit parade here at the Science Night Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to follow me, my name is James Reed, and you can go to twitter.com and look for James underscore Reed 3. Steffi, I'm going to switch it up a little bit. I'm going to go to you first. Where can people find you and follow you? People can find me on Twitter at Steffi Dean with, uh, that's Steffi with two eyes. And also I'm going to point you to my website that I helped launch, usfusionenergy.org. Check it out. Ooh, that is exciting. That is exciting. Jason, tell everyone where they can keep up with the goings on in your in your life. You can find me on Twitter at OrganJM. Awesome. If you want to follow the podcast, go to Cynite.com, S-C-I-N-I-G-H-T.com, where you will find past episodes and show notes for everything that we do and you can follow us on twitter maybe you'll see a special answer to one of our special questions from our guest bill sullivan on twitter you will find that at science night one thank you all for listening we will be back in two weeks with another episode until then have a great night The Science Night Podcast is a proud member of the River Power Podcast Mill. To find out more about our shows, go to riverpower.xyz. Oh, could you imagine if if his career would have taken off and we would be experiencing peak Polly Shore in, in this century? Oh. The world would probably be different. We'd probably have fusion already, Steph. <laughs> probably. Right?